If you're watching online, greetings. If you're joining us for the first time online or in person, welcome. My name's Mark. I serve as one of the staff elders, and uh, it's my privilege to bring the sermon, the message this morning. Um, before we uh, jump into today, to today's message, uh, just a heads up that next week we'll return to our series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 9. And um, I was in a conversation with someone this week who's not a, a believer, not a follower of Christ at this point, and just we were talking about what it means to be a Christian, and I was just saying, you know, the raw data, if you want to know who Jesus is, and you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you have to go to these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you're joining us, watching online, if you're here this morning, and you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian well, come back next week because this series in the Gospel of Mark helps us understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so the series is called Follow Me. This morning, we're in the second of just this little two-part uh, Life Along the Way, uh, a sort of sub-series on what we call the sacraments. We're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I mentioned last week, but want to mention again, uh, we've put together a little sort of a working paper on this. It's... Uh, covers these topics and especially related to parents and kids as this can be a question uh, th there can be questions about this as as kids are growing up in a church like this and so um, those are available at the welcome center and then there's an email that will go out after the uh, message and if you get that you can get that there as well if you don't get that you can sign up for those at the website or just contact the office so this morning we're asking the question what is the lord's Supper, sometimes called communion. What is the Lord's Supper? The passage that is going to be our, our text uh, for today is in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, and Mitch Fossum is going to read that for us. Thank you, Mitch. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, we believe your teaching that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. We believe that we did not make ourselves. We do not exist independently in the universe. We believe that we were created by you and we live in active dependence upon you. We have gathered here today not only to worship and thank you, but to listen to you. We pause in this moment and acknowledge our need for you. Every person in this room, every person in this service, we need you. We all may find ourselves in different places, but we have this in common. We need you. Through your word and by your spirit, would you speak to us, guide us, lift up and exalt your beloved son to us, and strengthen us to follow you, we pray. Amen. So churches like ours celebrate these two sacred ceremonies that we call sacraments, the first one being baptism, which we talked about last week. And this message will build on last week's message. So if you didn't get a chance to hear that, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. So baptism is the first one and the Lord's Supper is the second. These sacraments, these sacred ceremonies were instituted by Jesus. And so last week we looked at baptism. This week we're looking at the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, I just want to pause and ask, why did he do that? Let's, let's look at it sort of from a backwards way and just say, what if Jesus had never given his followers baptism in the Lord's Supper? What would be lost? What would we be missing as Christians if we didn't have these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper? Could we still be Christians without these things? Well, sure. We're not justified or brought into a right standing with God by being baptized or having the Lord's Supper. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ. We'd still, we could still be followers of Jesus today. We could still have the hope of heaven. What would be lost? If you're, if you're new to Christianity, this is a great time to, to come and be a part of this message because these two sacraments are gifts from Jesus to help us remember what he did for us in order to bring us into his kingdom. So what would be lost? Well, we would be missing two sort of gospel ceremonies that engage our eyes and our ears and our sense of touch. They're very present and real. We'd be missing those physical reminders. We'd also be missing the way those reminders point us back to who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his death and resurrection. We'd be missing the ongoing assurance that participating in these things bring to us that he's real, that he's taken us into his family, and that he's coming back, 
These physical reminders assure us in our hearts and souls of the reality of the kingdom of Christ and of his certain return. So last week we asked the question, what is baptism? And we answered it by, by asking four more questions. We jumped a level higher and said, what's a sacrament? We said, well, a sacrament is a blessing from Christ, which is a sign and a seal given to believers in order to teach and assure us of our salvation. And then we narrowed down and said, well, what is baptism? Well, baptism is the sacrament which uniquely points us into initiation in the Christian life, this ceremony of going into the water, submerged in the water, coming out of the water, signifying, third question, union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, new life. Also signifying in the water this cleansing from sin, where God makes us clean so that we can be in the presence of this holy God. And finally then, we asked who should be baptized, and we said, well, those who've made a believable profession of faith. And we unpacked that a little bit last week. Now today, we're asking the question, what is the Lord's Supper? And we have three questions is the, the, the layout to help us unpack that. So first, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11 and say, well, what is the Lord's Supper? Is it spelled out for us here? Then we're going to do a little synthesizing of the two weeks. We're going to start to pull these things together and say, how do baptism and the Lord's Supper actually fit together? How, how do they work together? And then finally, we'll ask the question, who should receive the Lord's Supper? So let's drop into 1 Corinthians 11 and let's ask this question, what is the Lord's Supper? That comes right out of the text in verse 20. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to this church, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're doing something else. And then he gives them some instructions from there. So you need to understand the situation. And I'm going to just give you a brief overview of the situation. And then we're going to really uh, zero in on verses 23 to 26, where, where he uh, uh, recites and reminds us of, of what Jesus said uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. But here's the situation. So you're part of a church. You, you, you've gathered on a, on, a, on a Lord's Day service. We're having a worship service here today. Well, in the first century, churches were doing the same thing, but there weren't any church buildings. And so people gathered in homes. And um, often as they gathered in homes, they would have a meal. Uh, you can read about that in Jude and other places in the New Testament. That can be called the, the love feast, the agape Meals. So having meals together is something that Christians have, have always been doing and um, continue to do. Um, but when they would gather together, they'd have some kind of a, a meal together, and then, then they would have the Lord's Supper. So the situation here is that in this home, and it's probably a, likely a wealthy person that, that's hosting this, so it's a big enough home for the, the church in that city to be able to gather. Well, you've kind of got people in two different parts of the house and people sort of grouped off. You've probably got in the dining room the rich people. And try to imagine what first century really nice eating would be like. It'd be like they're having their meal maybe catered by Maggiano's and the wine is flowing freely and they're just having a great time. But then in the same house, maybe in the garage, to try to picture it the way we would picture a house, you've got the poor people and they're eating yesterday's leftovers from McDonald's. And then when they're done having their meal, then they're all going to get together and have the Lord's Supper. And so you, 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 you've got this bizarre 
partiality and, and demeaning of, of people going on in the same household in the name of a worship service. And so Paul writes to this church, imagine being the recipient of this. And you know what he says? He says, your worship services do more harm than good. It would be better if you didn't even get together for church than if you get together and do what you're doing. Now you think your church has problems. How would you like to be on the receiving end of that? Like, that's a bad church. Like, that's trouble. And so he says, look, the rich people, you're arrogant. You're showing partiality. You're humiliating your brothers and sisters. And, and then having done that, then you all get together and have the Lord's Supper. That's not the Lord's Supper. I love what he says. What? Can you hear him when he says that? What? Are you kidding me? What? You can't do this. He's, he's saying, look, you're remembering Christ and you're acting nothing like him. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is, let me remind you what the Lord's Supper is all about. And so we're going to review now verses 23 to 26. That's the setup. You've got this church that's divided and you've got the, this, this arrogant treatment of the poor by the rich within the church. And so the Lord's Supper is a gift from God to help us. And I, I'm going to highlight three things. First, the Lord's Supper is a gift from God to help us remember the body of Christ. Keep your Bibles open while we go through this. And look first with me at verse 23. For I received, Paul says, I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing that the, the Lord's Supper helps us with is to remember the body of Christ. Now, here we got to see, we got to picture another situation here, okay? You need to understand what's happening here. This isn't any dinner. This is the Passover meal that Israel celebrated once a year. It's a memorial feast when they remembered what happened back in the Exodus. And you can go back and read in Exodus 10, 11, 12, 13. God was going to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought these plagues on the nation of Egypt, but Pharaoh wouldn't let him go, and he wouldn't let him go, and he wouldn't let him go. And the 10th plague was the Passover. And that night, the... Israelites, God's people, were told, sacrifice a, a lamb, kill a lamb, put the blood of that lamb over your doorposts, and then eat the lamb in a particular way and have this, this meal, this feast together. And then that night, when God passed over the land, every household had firstborn sons in it. And all those firstborn sons before God were guilty. This was like a preview of the last judgment. But the firstborn sons of Egypt died and the firstborn sons of Israel didn't. Why? Because they were covered by the blood of a lamb. Now, at this Passover meal, Jesus is transforming the Passover meal. And he says, hear what he says. This is my body, which is for you. Can you see what's happening here? He's not giving them lamb. He's giving them himself. Isn't that amazing? He 
is the new Passover lamb. This is my body, which is for you. That word for is the Greek preposition huper, which is a really important preposition. It means on behalf of, instead of, in place of. There's a substitution going on here. So he's saying, my life instead of yours. My death instead of yours. I'll take condemnation instead of you so that you can be justified and set free. So when we have the bread at the Lord's Supper, the bread isn't actually transformed into Jesus' actual body, as some people say, any more than the bread at this meal, Paul's referring back to, was actually transformed into Jesus' body. He's speaking symbolically. He's saying, this symbolizes, this signifies, this points you to my body. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we need to remember him? Because we forget. Because we get distracted. Our phones, our brains, our lives, we are constantly distracted. Even right now, how many in this room right now are struggling even to focus on what's being said? We are constantly distracted. And so we're given this meal as a gift to help us focus and remember on what Christ did. This is my body for you. The Lord's Supper is a gift to help us remember the body of Christ. Second, it's a gift to help us remember the blood of Christ. Look at verse 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. So they've had the meal. Now he's doing something new. He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wonder what that means. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, this, is the, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is that? What's a covenant? We don't talk a lot about covenants in our world today. A covenant is a solemn commitment that brings people together into a relationship. You know, where you see covenant enacted most commonly in our world today is in a wedding. At a wedding, a marriage is a covenant between two people before God until death do them part. So God entered into a covenant with his people, and Jesus is saying he's going to make that covenant or make a new covenant. What's he talking about? Well, if you read your Old Testament, you'll find that back in the time of the Exodus, back in the time when Israel came out of Egypt, God made a covenant with them. And the Ten Commandments were part of the making of that covenant. And the people were brought into this relationship with God and given the blessing of living in the promised land. But God's people, year after year, generation after generation, century after century, they couldn't keep their end of the covenant. They couldn't obey God. They they kept going astray. They kept serving other gods. They kept falling back into old ways of, of living and thinking and into idolatrous and, and sinful ways of living and thinking. And so, so they ended up in exile 
in, in consequence for that, they couldn't stay in the promised land anymore. God's trying to teach them his ways. And so they, 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 they come under God's judgment and they, they go to exile in Babylon. And while they're there in exile, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to them and he promises that God will make a new covenant. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so often when we look at the terms of this new covenant, we can look in Jeremiah 31. But this week I've been meditating on what it says in Jeremiah 32 because there's a second part of the explaining of the new covenant there. And there God makes these incredible, extraordinary promises to this people. So we're going to read this together. This is going to be a little more audience participation. But I, but I want you to understand what's happening here. God is saying to this people, I'm going to make an, a covenant with you, a new covenant. Who are these people? They're people that are in exile because of their sins. And while they're in exile, has there been this great revival? Are they all come to faith? Are they all on their knees saying, oh, God, we'll do anything to serve you? No, they're still rebelling. They're still wayward. They're still serving other gods. There's a few godly people like Jeremiah, but these people are still going astray. This is the people God says these things to. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the, the letters that are in white, and you get to do the red part. You get to do the I wills, okay? And I want you to hear God's promises in this new covenant through these I wills. Okay, you ready? All right. And they shall be my people and... Be their God. Give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Make with them an everlasting covenant that not turn away from doing good to them and put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Rejoice in doing them good and Plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Wow. Chew on that this week. I will make a covenant that never comes to an end. All good things come to an end. No, they don't. This covenant doesn't. It never ends. I will put the fear of me in them. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying he's not just requiring covenant keeping from us. He's creating it in us. He's doing everything necessary for a people to be in covenant with him. And the last part, oh, I've just, I have lived on this this week. I will rejoice in doing them good. Do you know that God? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know God that way? I will rejoice. Do you know that God has joy? Do you know what gives him joy? I will rejoice in doing them good. You look ahead in your life right now. What worries you? Where do you find anxiety? Where is there darkness up ahead? Things that are happening in this country or somewhere else in the world. Maybe it's health related. Maybe it's your job. Maybe there's a relationship. I want you to hear God's word. If you are in Christ, here is his word to you. I will rejoice in doing you good. Do you know what's waiting for you on Monday? A joyful God there prepared to do you good. Do you know what's waiting for you in a year? Five years? 
And when you die, a God who rejoices in doing you good. His joy is to give us joy in him. That's who God is. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. Oh, this new covenant is intended to be such a stabilizer for us as we go through life. Remember the blood of Christ. I will rejoice in doing them good. Finally, the Lord's Supper is a gift from God that we proclaim until he comes. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This word proclaim is a word, it's a preaching word. Do you know when we have the Lord's Supper as a church, we're preaching. You're preaching. When you lift that bread and that cup, you're preaching to the people around you. You are proclaiming Christ's death to all who have ears to hear. You're encouraging the brothers and sisters around you and people who have come amongst us who aren't Christians, who aren't followers of Christ yet, we're proclaiming Jesus lives and Jesus is going to return because we do this until he comes. Do you see there's an expiration date on the Lord's Supper? It's a temporary sacrament. And what happens when he comes? What happens when he comes is this. We won't need these little mini meals anymore because you'll be enjoying the greatest feast ever at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Do you know that God loves to celebrate and rejoice with feasts in the presence of his people. Do you know that about God? This Passover meal that Jesus is having was a feast ordained by God. He says, I want you to remember every year what I did for you and have a feast and I'll be there in the midst of you. God loves enjoying his people in the midst of them, enjoying great fellowship and food together. God not only calls us his people to offer sacrifices or to keep the commandments, he commands them to feast together in his presence. What kind of a God is that? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Oh, yes, it, it may. That's just what it's like. And blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And if you don't know this great God, and you haven't come to know Jesus Christ, you can. You need to turn away from living life on your own terms, not try to qualify by being a good person, but repent and turn from your sins and receive the gift of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf to come into a new kingdom. If you want to know more about that, maybe talk to a person who brought you here this morning or come see me or one of the leaders of the church afterwards or email us later. We'd love to talk to you about how to be invited to this wedding supper of the Lamb. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, in the little paper that we put together, just try to put it together, these, these statements. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament which uniquely depicts continuing fellowship with Christ. Did you notice he, he, he says, do this as often as you eat. He says, do this as often as you drink. This is a repeated ceremony. It's not a once for all. So it depicts continuing fellowship with Christ, a repeated act whereby the believer remembers the Lord's death and renews his commitment to participation in the Lord and in his church. In eating and drinking, the believer is nourished 
and strengthened to grow in grace. God's design and desire is that when we have the Lord's Supper, it actually does something inside of us. It assures and strengthens us. So now how do these two things fit together? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are the, what, how do they fit together? Well, let's, let's start with what do they have in common? What do they share in common? Well, they're both gifts from Christ. They're both for Christians. They're both temporary. And they're both signs of the believer's fellowship, not only with Christ, but coming into his church with his people. Well, okay, how are they different? Well, baptism pictures initiation into new life in Christ. And it's experienced once and for all. That's why we don't do rebaptisms in this church. But the Lord's Supper pictures continuation. Baptism initiation, the Lord's Supper continuation of new life in Christ. Baptism once, the Lord's Supper repeatedly. So who should receive the Lord's Supper? Well, first, we would say most simply believers, people who've come to follow Jesus. It wouldn't be appropriate for Buddhists or atheists or people who are spiritually minded or interested to come to the Lord's table because it's a, a meal of fellowship with Christ as Lord. And so those who have heard and responded to Jesus' call to repent and believe in the gospel should come and receive the Lord's Supper. It's part of how he strengthens his disciples. But we do need to say a little more. Who should receive the Lord's Supper? Well, it should really be baptized believers, shouldn't it? Because if we understand the significance of baptism in the Lord's Supper, we need to get the order right. Baptism first, then the Lord's Supper. Initiation followed by continuation and participation. This means that people who have not been baptized under normal circumstances should not receive the Lord's Supper. Now, this can get confusing sometimes, and I was confused about this. Now, let me be transparent with you. As, as our kids were growing up and they were starting to be interested in following Jesus, we realized, oh, baptism only happens once, but Lord's Supper happens all the time. We're having Lord's Supper all the time in here. They're saying they want to follow Jesus. Well, maybe it'd be good for them to have the Lord's Supper now, but well, we maybe you should wait till they're a little older to get baptized to make sure it's really meaningful. And, and, and so when our kids, when, when, when a couple of our kids were like in their teens, they began to have the Lord's Supper, but they hadn't been baptized. And there was a point where our, our elders, our pastors stopped and realized, hey, we need, to, we need to listen to the word. We need to listen to the greater body of Christ. And we began to understand this paper that, that is available for you came out of that study. And we realized, Oh, there's a sequence to these things, and they fit together in a particular way as God gave them to us. So our kids stopped having the Lord's Supper until after they were baptized because unbaptized children should not be taking the Lord's Supper. Unbaptized children under normal circumstances should not be taking the Lord's Supper. It confuses the order of the sacraments. You go to a swimming pool, you got all your clothes on, you jump in the water, swim around, you get out, dry off, and then go put on your swimming suit. Like, that's confusing the order of things, right? You got to get the order and the sequence right. So children or uh, other people who are taking the Lord's Supper without being baptized, it's a confusing message. Why would, why would you participate in one sacrament and withhold the other when they're both intended to strengthen the believer? And... Kids who are growing up in church who start receiving the Lord's Supper but haven't been baptized, well, it may actually be offering false assurance to a child that, that actually hasn't been truly converted yet, and we don't want to do that. 
So parents, a word for you. Making disciples of your children is a serious and solemn obligation from God. And we thank God for you and your serious and solemn commitment to doing that. And we really urge you to give these things careful thought. Search the scriptures. Develop biblical convictions about the baptism and the Lord's Supper, these sacraments. Work this out in community with other believers, other members of the church, and, and with your elders and leaders as well. And kids who are growing up here, I am so glad that you're here. And the elders want you to know we are so excited that you're growing up here amongst us and hearing about Jesus and every, everything that goes on inside you that causes you to move closer to Jesus, we want to celebrate that and encourage that and, 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 and come alongside you in that. And we want to dialogue with you and your parents as, as you grow up here to help understand what it means to follow Jesus and when's the right time to enter into experiencing baptism and then the Lord's Supper. And if any of you have questions about this, talk with the elders. Talk with Krista, the 515 uh, youth, youth leader. Come to this Partnering with Parents meeting that we'll have in May. But we really do want to get the order right. Baptism first and then the Lord's Supper. And it's worth noting, that's not a position that's original with us. As we started Reading more widely, we discovered Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics. My understanding is all of those denominations, Christians, hold the view that only baptized people should come to the Lord's Supper. So, last step in the process, believers should come to the Lord's table, baptized believers should come to the Lord's table, We'll also say as a Baptist church, a Baptistic church, baptized as believers, those who've been baptized as believers. Our convictions from Scripture are that immersion in water, following a believable profession of faith, is the right order for things. And I want to just pause here to say, this is where we want to say we have great respect for our gospel-believing uh, Presbyterian and Anglican and, and, and other brothers and sisters in Christ who baptize infants. These are fellow members of the body of Christ. I would just say personally, not many sermons go by in my preparation without me referring to J.I. Packer's little book, Concise Theology. did that again this week. And he was an Anglican brother. Um, uh, I believed in infant baptism. And so our understanding as a church is that infant baptism has, has been the practice uh, of the majority of people in church history, but our consciences are held captive, not by church history, but ultimately by Scripture. And God's word to us, we believe, is that baptism is intended to come after a profession of faith. Baptism is putting your faith on display publicly. And so we need to get the order right. We believe the order is repentance and faith and then baptism and then the Lord's Supper. And it's our desire for every member of our church and every child that's growing up here and everyone that's interested in this community to come into the joy of experiencing the sacraments in this way. So how do we explain this when it's time to administer the Lord's Supper, as I'm going to just do in a few minutes? Not an easy question to answer. This is a lot to try to pack into 35 seconds before receiving the Lord's Supper, right? So one of the challenges in working out how to administrate the Lord's Supper on a week-to-week -week basis, is that God gave us these basic principles, but he didn't give us a lot of details. He didn't tell us how often to have the Lord's Supper, or how to distribute it, or who should officiate it, 
or what to say to people who are present but not church members. And people have had a variety of practices. I uh, heard the story this week of Charles Spurgeon, the well-known uh, pastor in England, London in the 1800s. Many people who saw this great revival had thousands of members of his church. And if you were a member of his church at the beginning of the year, you got 12 tickets so that you could have each month the Lord's Supper. And to get the Lord's Supper, you turn in your ticket and you got the Lord's Supper. Well, that's one way of doing it. And there's a lot of other ways. We were with three other uh, pastors from three other churches in our area. These are pillar churches, part of our, our network of, of churches. We were with them this week. And you know what? We found out none of them do the Lord's Supper. None of them administrate it exactly the same way, even amongst those like-minded churches. And so your elders are in an ongoing dialogue about this. And we're really seeking what's the best way to teach what we believe as we're doing here, to disciple our members and children into those things. But we also recognize that when we gather in a time like this, your gospel-believing Presbyterian aunt may be here with you or someone who's following Christ but hasn't brought, uh, uh, come to these understandings may, may be joining us here today. So for now, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, we're simply going to say that professing Christians are welcome at the table while also asking those who are not Christians not to participate until they're ready to come follow Christ. So that's, that's, the, that's the overview. And the last thing that I'll want to say that leads us into actually receiving the Lord's Supper is those who should receive the Lord's Supper are those who are self-examined believers. Remember, there was this problem with people in, in their church service mistreating others and then going rushing into having the Lord's Supper. And so there's this call, let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself. So let me just pause there and just ask, how do you do that? What does that look like for you? How do you get ready for church? How do you get your heart ready for church? What does Saturday night look like? What does Sunday morning look like? How can we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper so that we don't do it in an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner doesn't mean that we're not Christians. That would be to be an unworthy person. But an unworthy manner means there's something about our lives that puts us out of step with God and receiving this meal that we need to, to give uh, thought to and change before we receive the Lord's Supper. And so we just want to, as we prepare for church, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we want to just ask, am I discerning rightly the body of Christ? Am I right with my fellow brothers and sisters? Am I right with God? Is there some place that I need forgiveness or need to go sort something out with a fellow believer. The Lord's Supper is like a, an opportunity for just a little spiritual heart checkup. How do I respond to the Lord here today? Do I need to repent of something? Is there something to give thanks for? Is there some other way to respond to what he's doing? So since we are the body of Christ, when we gather together, we want to remember Christ in the Lord's Supper. We want to treat one another as Christ treats us. And we want to receive the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for reflection on where we are currently in our relationship with God, if there's anything that needs some maintenance attention, but also to receive the fresh assurance that he wants to give us, that we're in an everlasting covenant where he's promised to rejoice in doing us good every day of our lives until he brings us home to be with him forever. Paul wrote to this church that they're, they're, Worship gatherings were doing more harm than good. 
I'm so glad I get to speak to you this morning and say, oh, church, your gatherings do so much good. And what a joy it is to gather and what grace there is amongst us when we gather. I love our Lord's Day gatherings. We, Leslie and I, so missed being with you on our sabbatical and are so grateful to have been able to return. Thank you for the way you love Christ, pursue and follow him, and respond to his word and seek to love one another and love the world with the love of Christ. It's a joy and a privilege to be on this journey together with you.